everybody. It's Wayne with Mark and Sierra and Areed, and we are so excited that you've come to watch the Eat Community Podcast. We know you're going to enjoy it. We actually did it live originally on our Eat Community webinar series, which we also invite you to come to, but you will love this podcast that you're going to be listening to right now. Hi, everybody. we got Wayne and Mark and Areeb, and Areeb's got a new baby. Areeb, could you show us a picture today sometime? That would be so cool. And our special <laughs> guest today, Tony Hill. Tony, how you doing? Hi, Wayne. Great to meet you. Good to meet you. And I can tell by the accent that I think you're from either Norway or Sweden. Oh, no, no. I think it's Australia. Southern um, Hemisphere. Yeah. And uh, what part of Australia are you in? Uh, well, I'm going to show people a little image of that when I do my presentation. Oh, but um, we're in so the we'll, East Coast pretty much. Just we, can wait coast. we can wait that. We can wait on that. Um, for everybody coming in, and there's a bunch of you out there, um, Please put your questions in anytime you have them. We sure thank you for being here. Um, I know Tony has actually been promoting this a little bit to his group, and we certainly have to ours, and this is going to be a lot of fun. Um, I think we're going to do a little bit of a, just an introduction, brief interview session, and then Tony's got about a 20-minute presentation or somewhere in that range. And then we'll probably end up with more questions. And guess what? I would be so excited if all the questions came from you people in the audience, none from me <laughs> um, and, and from our team. So please be thinking about questions. There is never a bad one. Every question is good. And uh, Tony, you've, you've probably met both Mark and Areeb now. They're both going to be helping us. All you and I have to do is worry about talking to this wonderful audience, and we'll let them do all the work in the background. So, Fantastic. Um, Sounds great. So Tony is in Australia, and he's going to tell us about where and give us a little bit more info. You can see that he has um, some farming activities. You can see that clearly. And um, I'm just going to start out a little bit about family. Tell us a little bit about your family situation, Tony. Yeah, sure. So um, that image that you've been using on the promotions is actually my wife, Jane Keeney. So uh, anyone who's looked closely uh, will recognise that that's not actually Tony Hill. Um, but uh, that's Jane harvesting some of her horticulture crop there. Um, she's currently very focused on uh, on producing garlic. Uh, so... Uh, so garlic is the name of the game in this area. And um, it turns out that uh, we're at a higher elevation here. And so the climate is quite well suited to garlic. And um, we're part of a, uh, a local uh, garlic growing cooperative who, uh, who are helping each other to build up their skills. So that's my wife, Jane. And uh, so she and I are the ones who live here on the farm. Uh, that picture you're pointing to next to me is one of my colleagues, Brian Welberg. Uh, but uh, but that's not a picture of me with the cattle. Uh, so but we have uh, have done some cattle grazing here. In 2016, our local area was subject to a very sh severe shortage of rainfall, and um, so we made the decision to entirely destock our 40 hectares. Uh, 
And uh, so we haven't had any livestock here for the last uh, five years or so. It's been fascinating to watch what's happened in the pastures during the dry times and then over the last 12 months since we've had a lot more rain and, um, and seeing where we're going with that. So uh, uh, we're, uh, we're in an area that's about a, an hour's drive from the national capital, uh, but that puts us in a country location. Uh, there's a range of different sized properties here. Some people are small like us and there's some uh, bigger uh, traditional farming properties as well in the area. Awesome. Tell us about um, someone in your early life, let's say, um, prior in, in your prior to your 20s, so your teenage years and younger, other than your parents who had an influence on you, a, a real positive influence on you. Yeah, so... Um so there were a number of people uh, in my teens who uh, who I got in connection with, and um, I've got to make a confession here, Wayne, that uh, in terms of kind of uh, adhering to my my high schooling rules, I was a pretty poor performer. Uh, so I didn't uh, I didn't like the arrangements that were applied to to my high school arrangements, and. Um, so I was working pretty hard to to move myself on from high school into a different arena, and uh, the people that um, that I got in touch with were mainly from a university background, and they were very interested in the social responsibility aspects of science. In fact, they had a society called SSRS, Society for Social Responsibility in Science, and they were concerned about. Uh, a bundle of unintended consequences of science, but particularly uh, the sort of environmental issues. So my high school years were pretty much winding up in the early 1970s, and that is the first time that I started to hear about uh, the potential impacts of, of warming of the atmosphere and carbon dioxide and greenhouse gas effects. So um, it was my association with those people that really kindled my interest in the environmental aspects of life. And um, uh, so, so the people there, uh, one person was a guy called Peter Elliard, uh, and uh, he was uh, doing a lot of talking to school students. And then there was another guy called Jeremy Evans, and Jeremy was actually a lecturer at the Australian National University. And Jeremy, combined with some other people, set up the first university-based environmental course in Australia. And so I was a student in that course when I finally managed to get my matriculation and, and dive into the university side of my education. So they had a big influence on me. Awesome. Um, you know, I would tell you out of the thousand plus speakers that we've had the pleasure of having with us here over the last five years, way more than 50%, I'm not going to give a specific number, but would say that they frankly didn't do that well in, uh, in uh, let's say, call it, you know, we talk to people all over the world. Some places it's called um, high school. Some places it's called, you know, by different names. But let's say that's why I said pre-20s, really. Um, and uh, so it's not unusual. Um, what about something you've read recently? And it's, let's just say it's related to your outlook on farming. Um, and ranching that you really would recommend, whether it's a book or a blog or a, you name it. Uh, 
something you've read that you could recommend? So, so there's quite a few things that I've read in the last few years that have been very helpful um, in terms of regenerative agriculture, but I'll just pick on one that I picked up uh, from, uh, from last Christmas. Um, and, uh, and this is a book titled Songlines that's sitting on my table here. And I'm only halfway through reading the book, so I've been uh, not very well performed at that. But this is, a, this is the first in a series of books published by the Australian National Museum uh, that tries to link Western and Indigenous Aboriginal understanding of our continent. And so I found that book uh, one of the most challenging uh, sets of, of knowledge that I've ever tried to get my head around uh, to be able to kind of draw some parallels from my kind of long Western culture into, into the 60,000 years or more of Indigenous Aboriginal culture. That's a huge challenge for me. Um, and, and I draw out one particular aspect, which I think is really fascinating. So as I was educated and grew up in the British uh, kind of outlook on the world, um, that Anglo perspective, uh, the idea of celebrating, you know, a paganist outlook on the world was completely kind of ruled out. You know, uh, my cultural background just looked looked down on that sort of cultural perspective, and particularly the animist elements of that perspective. And, and in reading this book, Songlines, and there's a couple more coming out in the series, um, getting to understand that the indigenous people treated the whole, every element of their environment as if it had a personality, um, I think is an amazing kind of concept. You know, uh, we've still got um, living indigenous culture in Australia, 60,000 years or more of heritage in that culture. You know, for them, that's life as they know it. Um, but for us from a kind of Anglo-Western background, it's, it's a very challenging thought to get your head around. But I think if we could do that as a Western culture, if we could come to respect the natural environment as if it was our best neighbour, our best friend, our best partner, I think we'd be doing an amazing amount of good for the planet. Oh, that's awesome. If you know this number, or even brought, you know, even in the in the out, you know, atmosphere of where it's at, tell us. If not, don't feel bad to just say, yeah, I don't know. And maybe Mark, you could even look it up. Maybe about how many Aboriginals are still in Australia living in their in their homelands, rather than I don't mean ones that are now living in the, the big cities and such and basically taken on a Western culture. Is it a, is it a very small number? Do you have any idea on the number? So, so the, the thing about this is that the degree to which Aboriginal people have been able to pursue their own cultural identity has gone through a suppression phase. So white White occupation of Australia has happened over, you know, 200 years ago. And for the first part of that, um, the Indigenous culture went through a huge suppression in all sorts of ways and all sorts of very nasty events. 
and and it was actually you know like a military occupation so every attempt was made uh, by the new settlers to suppress indigenous culture and uh, it's only much very recently that that the whole nation has really started to get its head around how to respect that culture and, and maybe even you know take value from it and so it's only been recently like in the last 20 years that that Aboriginal people have felt you know supported and free uh, to explore that culture and promote it and um, uh, you know within their own circles uh, of course that varies a lot depending on what part of the country you're in some parts of the country that process has been going pretty well but you know come back to to numbers you know indigenous people now only make up you know one or two percent of the Australian population so they're pretty small number of people uh, compared to you know a population of 25 30 million so uh, but but it's now starting to happen well and and one interesting example of this is that Australia suffered uh, what could be termed megafires uh, in the 2019-20 fire season in Australia and as a result of that um, there's been a, a re re-enthusiasm for understanding how fire operates in the landscape and there's a few indigenous communities who are working to get that as a kind of educational thing for the rest of the community almost as a business so I've been along to one or two um, sessions that have been run by Indigenous people um, trying to enlighten us on how, how the Indigenous culture used fire in the landscape. And um, in some circumstances, there's been some very successful results out of that. Uh, it's a very controversial area because to some extent, people are very nervous of what fire can do in the landscape and the amount of damage it can do. Very cool. Um, Mark or Eve or anybody in the audience, if you would, look up and see sort of what Aboriginal numbers in Australia were prior to white settling. By the way, I don't know that I could come up with that number for North America and either. And, and obviously here it's been, you know, 400 years, shoot, more than that now, maybe almost eight, 600 years that there's been, you know, heavy white feeling. Um, and so, again, I wouldn't know that number for North America, but I'm curious, I would be curious as to what the number was in Australia. Anyway, one last question, and then you're going to go to your presentation. Um, but before I do that, audience, I want to get you engaged. There's a bunch of you out there. If you wouldn't mind, do two things. One, put in a one on the little Q&A box if you can hear us and see us fine put in a nine the other end of the spectrum if it's not so good then we'll try to improve that second tell us where you're at in the world so just put sort of generally location where you're at and that would be awesome that way you'll st get started typing and then you'll get used to typing in your question so one last question and then we're going to go to your presentation is there a tool and it could be a farming tool, it could be a carpentry tool, it could be an internet tool, anything that you've started to use over the last year that you would love to tell others about because they should use it to get some good use out of it. Wayne, you're fantastic with the questions. There's so, uh, there's so much depth behind what you're asking and um, it's fascinating. Um, 
you said that I've started using in the last year. Um, oh, let me go back started. a decade. You have to have started. It could be maybe something that's unusual. You've used it longer, but maybe uh, you just now have really figured out that it's great. <laughs> so either one of those features. So, so um, we have plenty of people in Australia who are fascinated uh, with caring for their landscape. And in, in fact, you know, there's been some really amazing political alliances uh, between unlikely bedfellows. So the one alliance that really stands out is the alliance between environmentalists and farmers that was formed uh, back in the 1980s. Uh, so it's been around for 30 or 40 years. It's called Landcare. And um, so those people have an interest in kind of doing good works on the land and, and improving the situation. They could plant trees, they could take out weeds or stuff like that. But the unfortunate thing about some of those groups is that they tend to develop a plant by plant attitude to the environment. And so uh, in many cases in Australia, those plants are called weeds. And uh, we've even got a term in Australia called WONS, W-O-N-S, Weeds of National Significance. And, and my association with the debate about weeds in Australia has been that weeds might cost agricultural industry some billions of dollars a year uh, in trying to deal with weeds. And, and the favourite uh, weapon of choice for dealing with weeds is some sort of spray or chemical. Um, and so, you know, a lot of Australia is treated on a regular basis with various sorts of sprays. We came to our block of land in, in um, 2009, so we've been here about 11 years, and um, we get visits from our local government weed inspector about every three years to make sure that we're looking after the place and we don't, we're not creating a problem for everybody else in terms of these weeds of national significance. And so uh, in dealing with that situation, we have to war on particular species of plants. We have to go, well, you know, you're a weed, you're classified as a weed under the national significance arena, and we've got to do something about you. Otherwise, our local government will come in and order us to to do something about these weed infestations at our expense. Uh, so the regime is very intensive, but it is has very poor ecological literacy. And so getting back to the tool, uh, so my tool of choice for the weeds is actually a thing that I call a matic, M-A-T-T-O-C-K. And a matic has a handle uh, like a baseball bat and it has a blade on the far end and I can go around with my mattock and I can uh, dig out and turn over any of these weeds. And uh, usually I pass the inspection with pretty good colours, uh, but it's very intensive work compared to spraying. Uh, but in terms of the presence of weeds on our place, I can claim some success over the last 10 years that um, now the weed inspector is not, not too interested in us. That's awesome. By the way, we are completely non-chemical here at our place. We're quite a little bit smaller than you. No, not really. Actually, we're probably a little bit, a little, little bit smaller. I was just trying to do my conversion from English to, to metric. Um, but so we have about 100. Thistle. 
We have Canadian thistle and Russian thistle that are most egregious of our weeds that actually when we get inspections from a similar way that you described, they will come in and kill them with bad stuff, with Roundup and other chemicals that we don't want to have any use of, and then charge us for them. And so it's even worse than yours. They don't yeah. say, no, you need to get rid of them. They just they give you kind of one warning, and then they come in and do it themselves. And it's, um, it's not very good. So I've not used a Matic. I've used several other tools that are a little like that. But I'll give everybody one great suggestion, and it's one that we screwed up using and, and we, we would I would have said a year ago even this method doesn't work because we were doing it wrong and it's real simple what we were doing wrong and that is that we spray vinegar and a adjuvant which we use dawn soap and a very weak amount of salt and the amount of salt doesn't matter really it's the it's the vinegar but we've done this before because I've heard it recommended and it just didn't work well the problem was we were using vinegar that you buy at the grocery store. When you look at that carefully, you'll see that's only 5% vinegar. You need to use what I'm going to call industrial strength vinegar, which is, at least in our country, pretty easy to get. And you do need to wear gloves when you're spraying it because it can be caustic to your skin. There's no inhalation issue. It's got a smell to it. and You don't want to be spraying like right in your face. But, and then it's organic, it's going to go, you know, it's going to do its job, it's going to go into the root system of the plant, it's going to deal with that. It's going to kill anything it touches, quite honestly. So you, you would use it in the same way you might use something like Roundup. But again, it's half-life, it's negligible. When it degrades, it degrades into, a, again, organic-related substance. It works amazing. So a little bit like your, and, and it'll work by spraying a single thistle plant. And it'll get the stuff that's right around it. But I just walk around with the sprayer. And so I used to go in and dig these thistles out. And so it's a lot less physical. So that's something to think about. I don't know. We ended up getting the industrial strength, just ordering online and have it delivered in 55, you know, 55 gallon barrels. And it's really cheap. I mean, way, if I had 55 gallons of Roundup, I mean, that, that alone would be, you know, off the charts. This, this is, not not a not a high cost. I can't I remember exactly, but let's say for 55 gallons, less than a hundred dollars. And 55 gallons would treat many acres. Spraying the, the whole thing if you wanted to do that. Anyway, that's one thought. Well, I we do have people from Australia here, from the U.S., from Europe, from all over. So this is very cool. They're hearing us and seeing us all right, Tony. I'm going to turn it over to you. I'm actually going to turn my webcam off while you're talking so I don't distract people. And you just go at it. And when you're done, we're going to let the audience ask questions. And if they don't have any, I've got some more. And these will be really specifically farming related. So. That's great, Wayne. Thank you. So for the screen share, and I'll be good. Mark will, Mark will give it to you, I'm sure, here. So. I just did. So it should show oh, up. Okay. Please do it. Remember, Arib, at the end, you need to show us a picture that? of the baby. <laughs> Let me find something. <laughs> yeah, find something. Okay, so there we are. Um, so I'm talking about Land to Market Australia. That's the uh, the name of our our efforts here. And we're talking to the Ecological Ecolo Economic Action Team. 
where ecology meets business, which is fantastic. So, so my question is, wouldn't it be great if consumers had a way to choose their produce based on ecological health and support regenerative farmers? And that was the thought that came into my mind in 2016. So I started to understand the farming dimensions and um, some of the elements of regenerative agriculture. I thought, wouldn't this be a great opportunity if farmers could have, if consumers could have the opportunity to make those choices uh, with some sort of informed approach? So keep that question in your mind. Uh, just to give you an idea of where we are, so there's a map of Australia. And that big red pin uh, says where we are, which is towards the east coast, but we're up in the higher country. In fact, we're um, in our part of the world where we're only 100 metres lower than um, than the top of the, the highest area here. And you can see on the other side of that slide under the Goulburn Road that there's the, the, the sort of triangular shape of our property with its three large dams. Uh, so... That's 40 hectares in, in our language, or maybe 100 acres in a lot of people's language. And so that's, uh, that's an idea of where we are. If you look at that property and you look more at the satellite view, there's a few different features that stand out. Just point to them. So that circle shows you what we regard as remnant forest. So that's, that's trees and, and uh, ecology that wasn't destroyed in the original settlement process in this area. That area over there is what we regard as regrowth forests. So that's all stuff that's um, regenerated in the last 40 or 50 years. And so it's relatively small trees, that area. And then this area here is an infestation of early pioneer trees called wattles or acacias in our scheme of things. So we've got a mix of stuff there and in between the trees, um, you'll see the, the pasture on our property where we run the livestock. So going back to 2016 and 2017 and this question that came into my mind, wouldn't it be great if consumers had the information to be able to choose ecologically healthy produce? I came up with a six-point plan. So the first part was to create a brand uh, for Australian food and fibre. Second part was then to create a marketing plan that went with that brand and develop an accreditation system for farmers to then become involved in that marketing process. We wanted to build a network of support groups to help farmers get involved and create a sustainable approach to education for those farmers. And lastly, we wanted to make sure that none of the other elements interfered or diminished regional melting regional and rural mental health. And mental health is just one of the most significant issues for our farming communities in Australia. It's, um, it's a really, uh, really insidious sort of uh, problem. And I think that's reflected in other parts of the world. So, uh, so there was our six point plan. We took that six point plan off to an Australian government funding program called Farming Together. And, uh, that program was established in 2016. Um, it was born through an effort by the federal government to encourage farm cooperatives uh, as a pilot program with about $15 million. And we came to them uh, and had the discussion around those six points that I outlined. 
They said, well, yeah, that sounds like a really good concept. We're prepared to offer you the opportunity to apply for a grant. And we were successful at their highest level of funding, which provided us with just under $200,000 of grant. But we had to come up with matching. And so we came up with something like $100,000 worth of matching by the time we counted cash and in-kind. But the important part was that we convinced, we, we went to a bunch of farmers and they were committed to providing $1,000 each as part of our matching contribution. So that really got us started in talking to the farmers and that picture on the, on the slide there shows you one of the sessions that we are running with farmers in the paddock. Uh, we also took them to workshops where we introduced them to information about what we were doing. And one of the most important parts was the social interaction over dinner uh, where we ran a number of social events. Ultimately, our project was about feasibility and detailed planning. So we were taking those six points that I initially talked about, working them through with our constituency of farmers and coming up with the feasibility of whether we could undertake that six-point plan that I talked about. Excuse me. <coughs> so our feasibility included study of the farmer accreditation process, what sort of mechanisms we could use to remunerate farmers in that uh, arrangement, and then making sure that we were looking after the mental health aspects as well. We are able to conduct some detailed planning through development of a marketing plan, uh, we came up with a corporate structure and ultimately a business plan to go through that. So that gave us a very sound springboard for going forward. And so there's on the slide is one of the workshops we had with our farmers to discuss those elements of feasibility and detailed planning. Fast forward now uh, to where we are now established as an organisation and we have uh, hosted the first ever um, uh, generalised discussion of regenerative agriculture at this conference held in March 2021 in a regional part of Australia. And as you see, we've got a very full audience. We're hugely fortunate because it turns out that those dates of March 2021 were just between the two COVID lockdowns for Australia. So, um, so we managed to sneak in there with a face-to-face event and the atmosphere in that event was just electric. Everybody was so enthusiastic. We had a day of speaking from leading regenerative agriculture thinkers in Australia and then we took people out on bus trips uh, and field trips to various uh, locations around the area. Of course, as there was the social and the eating uh, part of those field trips, which was fantastic. And this is the sort of vision that people were able to get, uh, the sort of fence line comparisons of uh, what was happening on one side of the fence compared to what was happening on another side of the fence. So what we were able to establish out of the grant was called the Australian Holistic Management Cooperative. So we were putting it right out there that this was a holistic management perspective uh, that we were taking. Uh, after a few rounds of discussion with the co-ops registrar in our part of Australia, we got this cooperative newly established in 2018. And it was established with the purpose of implementing these two factors ecological outcome verification as the accreditation part of the process, and then land to market Australia as the branding part of the process. Right now we're up to around 50 members and we're monitoring around 50,000 hectares of land. 
And uh, according to my statistics, we've got about 50% of those members' farms are now verified under the ecological outcome verification. So we're making considerable progress on the farming side of that equation. But this all comes back to regenerative agriculture. When I put together those six points back in 2016, the term regenerative agriculture wasn't commonly understood or commonly used. And now, as the enthusiasm for regenerative agriculture is growing, it's become a bit of a battleground for, for who's going to kind of have the strongest claims to this, you know, whether that's going to be farmers or whether it's going to be businesses. Uh, we would love to see consumers right in the mix there. So what is regenerative agriculture? And I take this diagram directly from the Savory Institute view of the world. So on the left-hand side of the slide there, you can see that we have a potential G-generating system where soil is degrading, biodiversity is decreasing, and water is evaporating. And in those circumstances, droughts and floods and fires become a huge problem. Now, many of people have moved their understanding from saying, well, we need to avoid this degenerating situation because of all the problems. Let's see if we can move into a sustainable state. But of course, the tricky part is that if the environment is already to some extent degraded and you just want to sustain that situation, you're not going to make any progress. So let's move to the right-hand side of the diagram where we're regenerating the environment. We're seeing soil restored, growing biodiversity, and water and carbon are being sequestered into the, into the environment and into the soil. Now, here's the controversial slide. We would argue that you can't be serious about regenerative agriculture unless you get involved in ecological outcome verification. There are plenty of people out there trying to make claims in the regenerative agriculture space at the moment where uh, their, their attempt to define regenerative agriculture is really based on farming practices. And we know because the environment is always changing, always variable, that if you design a sort of set of practices that people have to be certified to or accredited to, you will limit their capacity to deal with the environmental change. Whereas if you go and look directly at the ecological health of the environment and see what the outcome is, uh, and you can verify that outcome, you've got a much better chance of getting, getting the outcomes that you want. So what is ecological outcome verification? Well, the first thing I should say is that it's the Savory Institute uh, that has created ecological outcome verification. And we have to give a huge call out to Pablo Borelli, who did most of the work to get this, uh, this scientifically based approach out there and, and organised into a practical delivery. Our part of the equation in Australia is that we've been able to implement ecological outcome verification or EOV it's based on annual monitoring according to this international protocol delivered by the Savory Institute. It requires limited resources, which means that it becomes an affordable proposition for not just a few farms or not just special monitoring sites, but across agriculture. And that is our vision. How far can we take this and get this implemented across agriculture? It depends on accredited monitors and verifiers for robust results. So our monitors and verifiers are actually going onto the ground, onto the farms, 
in doing the visual assessments and other assessments that are required by the EOB protocol. So we're not doing this through remote sensing and there's two important factors of that. We do see what's going on on the ground and also we're having a discussion with the farmer while we're doing it. We divide our protocol up into two elements. So there's short-term monitoring, which is conducted on an annual cycle, and then long-term monitoring, which is more detailed and conducted on a five-yearly cycle. So here comes the rub. Short-term monitoring relies on these accredited verifiers and monitors being able to do a visual assessment of 15 indicators. And that allows us to calculate an ecological health index or one number. Uh, it also allows mapping of those 15 indicators into the effectiveness of the four ecosystem processes as you would understand them under holistic management. So water cycle, mineral cycle, energy flow and community dynamics. So the long-term monitoring, which is more detailed, includes that ecological health index assessment, uh, but it adds a careful assessment of pasture species biodiversity, and it adds some measures of soil health as well. We could extend that, but we haven't done this yet, to include detailed assessment of soil carbon. So this is all about verification, and so we're careful of our terminology here. It's not about certification, it's not about accreditation, it's not about auditing, and in that sense, it's very different to a lot of the previous certification programs that have been out there. And then we link that ecological outcome verification as a solid base to a new brand. And our brand is called Land to Market Australia. And you can see the logo on the slide there. And the byline of that is that we encourage everybody, businesses and consumers, to buy into a healthier Australia. But the key point is that it's led by farmers as members of our cooperative. So it's a bottom-up structure. Once our farms get verified, then they're eligible to use the Savory Institute verification seal uh, and, get their, and put that onto the pack of their product out there in the marketplace. We've given a priority to the ecological outcome verification implementation in Australia, and that's no mean feat. It does take a lot of work to get ourselves organised to do it, but once we deliver it, it's very straightforward for the farmers. So that's been our priority is to deliver verification for the farmers. And so we've had a second priority on developing our relationship with businesses and consumers. On the national front, I think that that slide might be a little bit out of date because we're probably up to 11 businesses now. And some of them are meat producers, meat processing firms, uh, such as uh, such as Provenir. Uh, and some of them are consumer-facing businesses such as Harris Farm Markets and Barbell Foods. So, so we are engaging with the community, business community. There's a lot more discussions than is just listed on the slide there. And if you look on the Savory Institute website, where they're working on an international uh, level, uh, I think they've got about 60 brands that are now linked into land to market worldwide in the OV. So why are we thinking about regenerative agriculture? It's because of these global and national challenges, droughts, megafires, pestilence and pandemics, floods, flood, food security. They're all challenges in terms of, in terms of uh, uh, ecological health of our planet and they're all related in some way 
to uh, the way in which we've compromised ecosystem processes. So if we can get a really resilient environment, a resilient ecological context, uh, that will not only help these planetary problems, but it will also create the healthiest environment that we have uh, for our food and fibre produce. And I would just like to finish that, that part of the discussion on one point. There's a lot of people concerned about animal welfare and they ask the question, well, aren't you guys concerned about animal welfare? And you know, like any individual on the planet, they're concerned about animal welfare, of course. Um, but the point I would make is that the most, most beneficial thing that you can do for livestock is to put them in an environment where they can maintain their own health without artificial support. Uh, in that situation, as evolution has proved over the centuries and the, and the millennia, animals be, will be able to maintain their own health. If they do that in a healthy environment, they will then contribute to human health by being part of a healthy food chain. So I think I'll stop there and uh, I'm happy to answer any questions. I'm going to turn my uh, webcam back on, and that was just awesome. We really appreciate it. And there are, I know there already are some questions from the audience, so I'm going to go right to them. And you don't worry about them. I'll grab them, Tony, and I'll just give them to you. Um, That's fine. Let's, uh, a couple of them are comments. Go ahead. Um, Can we start, turn off the screen sharing there? Should I do that? Uh, you, no, you can leave it on. It, it, it's fine. It's a good slide to be, be on there. Just leave it. Um, okay. it it's, it's a good place. Um, this is a comment. Um, these are people that I'm sure know you. Uh, hi, Tony and Wayne from Donna and James Winter Irving, um, Nagambi, Victoria, Australia. Um, the next one is a comment, yep. but it's worthy of, of some comment from us. I think Alvin, uh, Alan Savory has, be, has, has best advice about burning off landscape. Don't do it. I hope that you weren't interpreting, Ian, that I was talking about using this uh, vinegar as a burning. It's, it, it's, not, it, it's really killing the plant. It's not burning in the way that I think Alan's talking about. I think Alan's talking about a process that a lot of Americans use, at least, which is to burn um, ditches and burn areas that do have weeds but have other vegetation in it because they believe that that burning is actually very positive over the long term because that's what, have happened, what would have happened naturally in, in, in those areas. But I'm not sure about that. But do you have any comment on that thought, um, Tony? Absolutely. So, um, you know, I'm very much coming at... Uh, at the questions of ecology and the tools that can be used to manage the natural environment from a holistic management perspective. And so, uh, you know, Alan's given us some very valuable tools there to understand uh, what's happening with a very complex ecosystem processes and also some tools that we can use to intervene. But the most important factor, of course, is to then monitor. And so I think people kind of, um, maybe get the wrong idea of holistic management from that point of view. They think that it's a prescription that you should use or not use particular tools. And, and maybe they've come to that realisation because of a lot of the certification and accreditation programs that have been out there. 
But from my point of view, the most important thing is to monitor the effect. Now, you know, what can we say about Indigenous burning in Australia in that environment? You know, the historical record and, and the early white explorers tell us that there was a considerable amount of burning going on in the Australian landscape. And, you know, it's very top, popular, popular now to talk about that in an Australian context as traditional burning or cool burning as opposed to hot fires and very damaging fires. And there certainly is a difference between the two. But a successful use of fire in the landscape really relies on, on a very uh, thorough understanding and capacity to monitor the effects of that fire. Um, as a member of our local volunteer fire brigade, I've certainly seen some extremely damaging effects of fire, uh, particularly from that 2019-20 season. So, you, you know, fire can create some awful side effects. Um, it also releases, you know, nutrients and carbon into the atmosphere. Uh, so judicious use of fire is a very important thing. And, and I think the trouble has been that in the absence of access to any other tools, People have tended to reach for the box of matches before they reach for any other tool. I wouldn't exclude it from the environment, but I would say be extremely careful about how you do it and do it on a small scale before you start getting into using fire on a large scale. Awesome. Um, come on, audience. You guys can throw some more questions in. A lot of you out there, just think of anything. Not, not, no bad questions. Everyone's a good one. Um, but I'm going to throw some mine in while we're waiting for yours. Um, let's say you were, so you started this process on your land, on your um, 40 hectares in 2016 or before that? Uh, we've only owned this block of land since 2009. So we've been here 11, 11 or 12 years now. Um, and did uh, I, but when did you, when my did you start the savory process? Uh, yeah, that was not before 2013. That's correct. Okay. So you've gone through one five-year long-term assessment or two? No, we've only managed to get one baseline for long-term at the moment and, okay. and two other sets of short-term, three years of monitoring, yeah. And if you look down the road 20 years, tell us what you just broadly see will be different if you're still maintaining the verification that you want to have for your land. I can see that right now in, in my own kind of looking at the, the pasture, but a crucial concept gets involved here and it's, it depends on the phrase. And a lot of people use that phrase, seeing is believing. Um, now, you know, getting the right sequence of events in terms of that is very, very important. So my, a lot of people, I think, you know, our traditional approach is that we will believe things when we see them. Now, the difference is being able to see things and then believe them. And so... Now that I walk around my pastures, you know, with the experience of the holistic management education and more literacy from ecological outcome verification, I can see parts of my pasture that are just amazing. 
they are a huge contrast. And I must admit, I had some Department of Agriculture people here who walked across our property in the early days and they just kind of like were really looking down their nose and saying, this place will never amount to anything. Look at the species that are here. Look at the, the difficulties of this environment. And now I go out to my pastures and I can see particular parts of my pasture that are just a huge contrast. They're like, they're like the difference between irrigated and non-irrigated land. Uh, it's just amazing. And yet they grow up naturally without any of that intervention because of the environmental circumstances on our land. So my dream is to see that pattern from those little islands of, of biodiversity spread across our whole landscape. Awesome. So um, Andrea says, hi, Tony and Wayne, Andrea Tullock. Um, and then here's a question, and this is from Steve Hailstone. At what point and how is EOV and land to market planning to start educating the public slash market slash consumers? And then he says, yes. thanks. And, yeah, great to hear from you, Steve. Good on you. Um, so, so that process was begun by the Savory Institute in 2016 when they had a campaign of eat it, wear it, regenerate it, ignite a consumer revolution. And I was part of the Savory Institute activities from that theme uh, for the Australian end of the discussion. And at that point, I didn't thoroughly understand where the Savory Institute wanted to take this, this theme of, of igniting a consumer revolution. But I thought as a group, a small group of Australians in Australia with no budget to do this, how could we ignite a consumer revolution? Well, it turns out that we can do that through established businesses. And I think one of the wonderful things that we've seen is the way in which the business community, once it makes up its mind that there's an important thing to do, it can really have an influence on our future. And I think, you know, from my own personal experience, and I think I've seen examples of this in Australia and around the world, um, the interventions of business, say, on the front of different campaigns, maybe same-sex marriage, or, or perhaps in the carbon environment, which is very current, um, Business is starting to move and say, no, no, we have to get serious about this because this is actually not just a community issue or a social issue, it's actually a business issue as well. And so that's the vision of, of Land to Market Australia and Land to Market is that we are able to reach out to the consumer landscape uh, through those businesses. We have survey information already. For instance, 75% of Australian citizens think that environmental protection needs to be carried out uh, through government policy as part of the response to COVID. There's a huge groundswell of support amongst consumers who if they see something serious, something that's well justified, they will get behind it. And so we will be able to communicate through to them uh, through the business engagement that we've been creating. Boy, I've got hundreds of questions. You and I will talk privately about them. One of them is related to a contrast between what governmental control or planning might be versus what um, cooperative, which involves the people 
involved making decisions is. That, that's a, another big question for a different day. But here's one from Simon Winfield. Simon says, I note that economics is defined as economics means maintaining natural waste resources in ways that benefit us economically. Yep, that's correct. And Wayne, is this the correct definition? Yeah, and, and the guy who developed the word, Dennis Weaver, I think Dennis used to say it in his cowboy sort of way, a little more succinctly. And he would say, we've spent billions of dollars, maybe trillions, but he'd say billions, and thousands of years screwing the planet up. Now we need to show people how they can make a little money making it better. And that's truly what economics means. And then he, he also used to say um, that uh, if you take ecology and management of the ecological elements of our planet and you put them on a spectrum of where way over on the left is groups that would say, you know, I'm not sure humans even belong in this ecosystem at all. And if they do, I don't know what good they are. And, um, and I'm not going to name names of groups, but there are some that are quite obvious that are way over there on the left. And those are considered ecological organizations. I'm not going to pass judgment. Way over on the right, get my hand in here, is, um, is a group that would say everything has to revolve around man. And I'm actually going to name a name here. He's actually a friend of mine, and I, don't, I love his music. I don't agree with a lot of his attitudes about ecology. But Ted Nugent would fall way over there on the right. And Dennis used to say, we fall in the middle of the colonomics where there's certainly got to be some of both, but there has to be a little bit of a money-making approach that goes in there. And, and then notice it's not a lot of money. It's a little bit. It's what does work. So anyway, that's, that's correct. Um, boy, we're getting lots of questions coming in now. Do you have a, at least five extra minutes, Tony, if we go over here? With some of these questions because it looks like yeah, it's starting to find a lot of really cool. Yeah. All right. Um, here's one from Andrea Tullock. My husband and I attended the conference in Albury in March. It was inspiring. We run sheep and cattle in Adelong, New South Wales. That probably makes more sense to you in terms of maybe others, me included, on exact location. What are your tips for starting down this road? And I think she means the savory approach on a large scale, she or he. I think Andrea would be she. I think that's probably right. Yeah, it's a really nice idea to start on a large scale um, because that potentially has large effects. But, but for a lot of people starting out, and, and I've heard this from people who are well-respected, so many of us will admit that we don't understand all the forces that we're trying to deal with. And there was a little bit of an implication in what you just said, Wayne, of, of this historical perspective that people are somehow separate from nature. And I think we've just got to move along from that position. People are part of nature. We live in a natural environment where biological organisms, the continuity of us uh, to nature is continuous. And so, you know, in Australia, there's a definition of national parks that says that we have to take agricultural production off the land in order to let it recover. And, and we're now finding that the unintended consequences of that policy 
uh, are coming home to roost and there's a very severe debate about the damage that wild horses are doing to one of our national parks in the high country of Australia. Uh, so just unmanaged land doesn't necessarily work. We can't, we, we can't possibly take humans out of the equation. Humans are definitely part of the equation. And, and one of the interesting things about the Indigenous debate that we were having before is that, you know, 60,000 years plus of experience says that there was one group of humans who managed to get stability over that length of time, which you know, I can't even imagine that, you know, I have trouble imagining 200 years, let alone 60,000. Um, but, uh, but, you know, during that 60,000 years, we're, we're now very excited about climate change. There was very substantial climate change over 60,000 years, and yet there is a culture that managed to There's keep itself. There's ice ages during that time. <laughs> so, exactly. Um, exactly. Also, to be during that time. So, so to come back to the question, um, you know, from a 200 years experience, we don't have a very good literacy of what we're actually doing. Uh, I would suggest starting small. Um, Graham Hand has coined the phrase "safe, safe to fail trials." a very good idea, uh, but, but certainly my starting point would be to get in touch uh, with initially the online holistic management training. That'll give you a very good start. And then there's some face-to-face -face training, but there's a range of different training options, as you saw at the conference in Auburn. Awesome. Um, real quickly, um, there was another part of Simon's question that I'm going to address, which you say, Simon, how would you say that holistic management cooperative farmers improved on the definition? Yeah, they obviously have. I, I'll be real honest. This is one of the things that I think um, was stated when I asked a question of Tony before, which is um, a lot of times we get so fo focused on the tool that we forget about what we want to accomplish. And I, I like to use the, the description If Tony, if I ask you, um, you need to you need to get a bolt in between two pieces of wood. What do you what are you going to do? Two pieces of wood. Sorry, if I needed get to a bolt. get a What's that? Get a bolt in between two pieces of wood. Yeah, well, I'd try yep. and join them together, I guess. <laughs> okay. Notice he didn't say anything about a tool. The answer most people give is, "I've got to drill a hole." Well. Yeah, that probably is the most likely way. But what if you could do that with a laser? What if you had a tool that could get that bolt in because it had so much power that you didn't have to do anything and, and the pieces of wood? Don't focus on the tool. Focus on the solution. And, and, and in this case, obviously, the solution that holistic management is putting in place would absolutely, in Dennis Weaver's mind, and certainly in mine, be a colonomic. And honestly, here's what's really cool. There's hardly anything you can do that is not economic if it's done to think those two things. Make the planet and people better. We've added actually making people better too, making people and the planet better, and make a little money doing it, all right? So any kind of recycling or, you know, where you're, you're getting getting some economic benefit from re recycling things and returning things and doing things of that nature. But there's very few things you can do that are not economic. I'll throw a couple that probably aren't. Some kind of sex trafficking is probably not uh, economic. 
Um, you know, there's there there probably would be you know things in the the non-ecological realm that would not be considered economic. But anyway, yes, absolutely, way economic. All right, here's another question for you. Um, what is required? This is a great one, um, and I, I I would have asked this. What is required for one to become an EOV educator slash verifier, and how long will it take to become accredited? And this is coming from Musa. Yeah, thanks, Lisa. Um, the answer to that, you know, in in a perhaps a lighthearted way, is it's as long as a piece of string, um, because you have to get that ecological literacy. You have to understand and be able to see uh, and break through your own beliefs to see what is actually happening out there in the ecology. So that's the most important factor. Um, according to the book, uh, you can get in touch with the kind of theoretical base or the knowledge base behind EOV as a monitor in a four-day course. Uh, but then you have to spend enough time in the field, you know, that's kind of an apprenticeship situation to be able to understand what you're actually seeing in the environment and be able to do those visual assessments properly. Um, that is a continuous process. Uh, we've got some great people who we're just training up to be part of the monitor process at the moment. Uh, they come with very strong backgrounds, all sorts of different backgrounds, but, but very helpful information. Some of them take to this very quickly if they've got a strong background. Other people take a bit longer by the time they're apprenticed to it. Awesome. So Ian threw in a little bit more of a comment on the burning side of things and then just throw it out. Thanks, wood chipping and making charcoal via smokeless pyrolysis would be much better than burning off his comment. I'm not gonna add any opinion, but it requires people to actively work in the forest. National parks are ruining our landscape because people are kept off. And this must be Australian description. That's, by the way, that's not the case in the United States, the national forests. Um, people don't realize it, but most national forests are used for grazing. They're leased. They're used for a whole wide variety. Not always in the best way, but they're used in that way. Um, people kept off. People need to holistically manage forests. Uh, I don't think Tony would disagree with that at all. Um, Tony, one more from me. And, and then audience, if you've got more, throw them in. We'll, we'll probably, this will probably be the last one unless you guys throw some more. Um, your opinion, and, and I know Alan, and he spends some time right down the road from me. We've interviewed Abby Smith. We've interviewed any number of others. We, we love the whole topic. I think Alan's done amazing stuff. He's done a great job of making sure that he's got a legacy too. In other words, people, a little younger than you and I, Tony, that uh, that are there to keep this moving ahead, and that's that's just incredibly important. And lots of other people that would be considered regenerative: Mark Shepard, Joel Salatin. You know, I, I'm not, I don't. Those just happen to be personal friends, but I, I'd throw out a whole bunch of other names. Are high, you know, hugely in in favor and in, in, and have commonality with Alan. But one last question for you. If you put yourself on the line a little bit here, what's the biggest limitation that you see for why you don't have 5,000 members in your cooperative versus 50? So the biggest limitation is in our own head. And um, 
you know, I like the uh, the phrase that uh, one of our regenerative farmers in Australia, Charlie Arnott, uses. You know, it's the paddock between your ears that's the one you've got to change. And it comes back to that phrase that I was talking about. I won't see it until I believe it. And and our belief systems are so strong and they so influence the way in which we look at the world, it's scary. And so um, that's one of the reasons why Alan Savory is now very focused on trying to get the policy changes that will make uh, uh, a fertile environment for people to adopt regenerative agriculture and, and particularly holistic management. And I must say that um, speaking as someone who worked for the Australian government for 20-something years, um, you know, uh, that's, a, that's a huge challenge to get government to shift its outlook. Um, they, they typically won't shift until they see a major change of perspective from the electorate. And so um, we have to get a lot of people there to be able to kind of see the world differently. And, and I just come back to that hugely important world, uh, word that, that Alan has made so, so much of a profile for us, that word holistic. You know, it's so hard with us, with our limited human intelligence, even though it's pretty strong, um, to understand the whole world holistically that everything is connected to everything else. And I just recently did some research and I was surprised by this, that I found that principle uh, that in ecology, everything is connected to everything else is regarded as the first law of ecology. So uh, I'm fantastic about that. You were talking about the, um, the phrase of ecolonomics. And um, you know, when I finally got to university in my late teens, uh, I was keen to study environmental studies, but someone said to me, you really ought to study economics as well and see if you can join the two up. And, um, you know, that, uh, that vision has been about 50 years coming to fruition in my life. And I'm finally working in an area which does join the two. It gets the economic forces uh, to be aligned with the ecological forces. And I think that's just a wonderful opportunity. Yeah. And... I'm now going to answer my own question from a perspective of an observer and not someone living in it. And you just dealt, you just hit on it at the very end. Is that you're absolutely right that it's what's between the ears and, 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 and a change of mentality. But I think the only way you're going to get to that at a big scale is you've got to have more money that goes into the whole process. And, and as long as we have the trillions that are going into companies like Monsanto and, and Cargill and others who have a whole different philosophy of the way that we ought to be feeding our planet, we can't win or we can't win big. And we will keep having Acres USA conferences that haven't had any increase in numbers in over 25 years. We'll keep seeing elitists, and I'm not saying that in a negative way like ourselves that that are trying to do good things and we have done good things but we, we haven't been able to show people at a bigger level to get it in between their ears and so i hope that alan and others find billionaires who literally don't want to run the show they don't want that they want to put enough money and, and maybe it's just a billion one dollar errors um, to put a billion dollars or more in to where, 
you don't get a $150,000 grant to do what you did, plus all the money that, that got put in. You put three more zeros at the end of that. And just think what you would have been able to do yeah. to get in between people's ears and, and into their minds. So, um, and, and that's when we'll see a revolution. Because, folks, I'm going to say it. We can't feed 9 billion people on this planet by 2040 without using methods that are not involving the land. They're going to be gene-created foods. They're going to be fake foods. And that, that, that might feed people. I, I, I'm not saying it, it can't. But we can't keep farming the way that the vast majority of the United States is farmed. We don't have enough water to do it. We don't have enough, the soils are getting killed. We don't have soils anymore. We have dirt. They're getting killed by the pesticides, herbicides, fertilizers. And we don't think about it right now, but we won't have enough food. Right now, we do. So we don't look at, but we won't in those, in those 25, less than 20 years from now. And then last piece of that, everybody should realize this. We can't keep relying on trains, boats, planes, trucks getting food to market. In the United States, in any major city, if the supply of food was cut off from trucks and trailers and planes and trains, people would be killing each other in the streets in three days because that's all the food that we've got stored. Three days. We can't have that. Um, so anyway. That's my soapbox. One last one here for me and small. According to the Bible, we were put on the earth to look at all creations to grow the garden. God will bring to ruin those running the earth. So let's get on with regenerative ag. Well, thank you for putting a biblical perspective in place. Um, again, that's another discussion and much longer. And, and there are other spiritualities that, that have their views. I happen to be uh, a Bible follower, it sounds like what you are in, and I kind of agree with your thoughts. It scares me to death to think what my, what God might be thinking and doing right now. Um, and, and I, I, I'm old enough that I probably won't live long enough to see what dreadful <laughs> exposure might be, but I've got grandchildren who will, and, uh, and, and certainly will be around way after 2040 and 2050. So anyway, Tony, no more questions here. Let's turn it back to you. Ian, thank you for your last comment. Thanks, all the audience, for your comments. And um, give us some last thoughts to finish things off. Oh, Wayne, thank you very much for this opportunity to talk. And, um, you know, uh, it's interesting you talked about the challenges that we face in the large institutions and businesses. And... Uh, it's fascinating to see some of the revelations of what happened to other businesses who had unsustainable business models. They recognised that very early in the process. They worked tooth and nail to try and defend their position, um, but in the end were brought undone by public policy. Um, the seeds of that undoing, are undoing in this environment are already in place. Uh, so those big businesses already know the writings on the wall. And uh, we're going to be successful. There's no question about that. Uh, we just have to make sure that we continue to think of ourselves 
in a holistic sense. There's continuity with nature, continuity with each other, and work together. Yeah, thank you. And I apologize, I'm going to get one last word in. One of the things that Tony talked three times about when he was showing what was happening at the early stages of, uh, of the savory program was eating together, <laughs> breaking bread, socializing. Um, we do so little of that anymore, and we, we really need to get back to it for so many reasons. It's, it's just amazing that we've gone away from it. And that, that actually has some spirituality, biblical, and um, they, they say that Jesus talked over 350 times about um, his own breaking of bread and the importance of that throughout, throughout the very short time that, that, he, was, that he was together. <laughs> Let's eat together, yes, um, uh, he says here. And, and we've gotten away from that, and, and we really need to come back. And again, it, 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 doesn't, it isn't unique to the biblical spirituality. Uh, Muslim spirituality teaches a similar sort of thing, and, and Hindu spirituality and so on. But we, we're just not doing it anymore. And that, that's, that's a good one. Um, Tony, this has been awesome. Uh, Mark, you've been great. Audience, you've been great. Great questions. Uh, almost all of you stuck around this whole time. That's always great. This will be a replay. It'll be out in a couple of days. Tell everybody about it. This was an amazing uh, situation. Tony, please know you're welcome to come here to my place. Uh, if you get into watching any of our webinars, you'll see that I have a very unique place that I think if it was in a verification status through a savory program could, could, could look pretty good. Um, completely self-sustaining. I have the advantage of being in control of the entire ecosystem, meaning um, from the water, uh, everything else for the land that I manage, so I don't have to get worry about other people screwing it up from upgrading of me. That's always a, a good one. And I took a really ugly piece of property that I bought in 2006. I mean, heavily overgrade cattle field to being in Nirvana today. And other people, this is other people's words that told me this many, many times. And it was just because of, I didn't know squat about what, what Tony and I have been talking about. I had feelings about it and I thought that I lived a lot of the little things about it. But, um, boy, listening to Alan and, uh, Joel and, uh, Mark and to, um, Jeff Lawton and to, and any number of others has just really changed. And, and, and it's not costly either, by the way, and it can be a colonomic. We make a little money on this place. It isn't just some thing to look at and be pretty. So thanks, everybody. And Robert, you were conspicuously quiet. We have one of our regulars, Robert, who usually puts in lots of references and stuff, and he just said thank you. And he said, very cool. Thanks. Um, we will talk again, at least privately, and we love it, Tony. Um, you even just tell us when you'd like to come on again uh, and tell us about advances and promote the savory process because we would love to endorse it and promote it as much as we can help you do. Thank you so much, Wayne. Congratulations on all your work. Hey, everybody. I bet you enjoyed that immensely. That was one of our most amazing presentations here at the EAT community. Please look forward to our next podcast in the very near future, and we look forward to seeing you again on the EAT community podcast.